Welcome to History of Sydney, available on iTunes and SoundCloud. I'm Ilana Penderose. And I'm Dr. Robert Jones. Now, this week we continue with part two of the invasion of Sydney Harbour on the 31st of May 1942 by three Japanese midget submarines. Having already conquered half of Southeast Asia, the Empire of Japan, by mid-1942, stood poised to invade Papua New Guinea, thereby threatening the sovereignty of our northern border. Fortress Singapore had fallen, Darwin was being bombed, whilst many of Australia's trained fighting men were already serving abroad in the fight against European fascism. Sydney siders, most of whom had yet to witness the war firsthand, and who were still going about their everyday lives, were shortly to receive a big wake-up call from a determined enemy beneath the waves. Yes, what I think we managed to cover last week in substantial detail was the rising threat of Japan in the region during the 1930s and early 1940s. What we perhaps didn't get to cover in quite so much depth was the ill-preparedness of Australians for war. Uh, It would perhaps be easy to criticise the lack of thought that had gone into building an effective defence strategy for Australia much earlier, perhaps during the 1930s, when the Japanese threat became especially evident. But this is to ignore a number of key factors. Firstly, there is the point that Australia had always counted on British support in times of crisis, or more importantly, perhaps, upon the deterrent of having Britain, a major world power, as its protector. The idea that any country would have the nerve to attack Australia whilst it had Britain watching over it was unthinkable, even by the early 1940s, I think, when British prestige on the world stage had already gone into decline. Secondly, and what I think a lot of people living in this day and age are inclined to forget, is just how deferential to Britain Australia's leaders were at this time. It wasn't merely to Britain that we were looking for defence in times of peril. It was basically to Britain that we looked for guidance in nearly every major political issue our national government sought to address. We had, of course, had our own national parliament since Federation, since 1901, But it's not until 1931, with the passing of the Statute of Westminster, that we get dominion status, that is, making us a sovereign nation. And even then, it's not until 1942, when the Curtin Labour government takes power, that this legislation is actually put into effect. John Curtin, now Prime Minister for most of the war and for the entirety of the war in the Pacific, recognised that if Australia was to stand any chance of survival against the Japanese, it could only be through challenging the traditional military association with Britain and beginning to build a new relationship with the United States of America, which was really the only power in the region that had the industrial might to counter the Japanese threat as it emerged. It was, of course, only the beginning of a geopolitical shift, I think, that would take several decades to really make its mark on Australian society, but it was nevertheless a key turning point. Now, at the beginning of the war in the Pacific, Prime Minister Curtin states that this is the gravest hour in our history. We Australians have imperishable traditions. We shall maintain them. We shall vindicate them. We shall hold this country and keep it as a citadel for the British-speaking race and where civilization will persist. Now, taking advantage of his government's landmark assertion of independence from British control, one of his first wartime acts is to order the Australian Imperial Force home from the Middle East, where 
it was still engaged in the fighting the European fascist powers, Germany, Italy, and of course Vichy France. In the time it would take for them to arrive and prepare to counter the new threat, however, it would be left to a poorly trained militia to hold the line in Papua New Guinea. In February 1942, Darwin is bombed for the first time, and this is the point at which most Australians begin to see the enormity of the threat they're facing. They meet this threat, I think, in the only way they can, with the same mixture of determination and improvisation that had really characterised Australian society since, since the earliest days of settlement. This is really the context in which you have to look at the events in Sydney in mid-1942, I would say. There were a lot of mistakes made, a lot of shortcomings in the way that the Australian forces responded to the Japanese attack, but it was not for want of skill or initiative that they did so. At 8pm on Sunday, the 31st of May, 1942, the Japanese midget submarine M14 was launched from mother submarine I-27 at the mouth of Sydney Harbour, manned by Lieutenant Kenshi Chuman and Petty Officer Takeshio Morai, the midget began its mission by passing a seabed indicator loop designed to detect the presence of enemy submarines underwater. Now, fortunately for its crew, their detection by the loop was dismissed by the harbour's defences as a faulty reading, probably owing to heavy civilian traffic in the area. It will be the first of several key intelligence blunders over the course of the night. At 8.15pm, M14 was sighted by a Maritime Services Board watchman attempting to pass through a gap in the harbour's anti-submarine boom net. Despite passing on his sighting to a nearby patrol boat, HMAS Yarama, it wasn't until 9.42pm, more than an hour and a half later, that news of the enemy submarine finally reached Sydney Naval Headquarters. By this time, M14 had become fatally ensnared in the boom net. After several failed attempts by HMAS Lolita to sink the intruder with depth charges, the submarine finally exploded at 10.35pm. Acknowledging the failure of their mission and choosing to die honourably rather than risk the disgrace of capture, Truman and Omori had activated their vessel's forward scuttling charges, killing themselves and wrecking their submarine. It was only the beginning of what would be a long night for Sydney's defenders. At 9.48pm, whilst M14 was still attempting to free itself from the boom net, a second midget submarine, the M24, was entering the harbour. Yes, the M24 was, if you like, the most infamous of the three Japanese midget submarines that were involved in the Sydney Harbour attack, namely because it was the only one that was able to successfully fire its torpedoes, and because it remained missing for more than 60 years after the incident, giving rise to all sorts of speculation as to its fate. M24 was launched from the mother submarine I-24. It was crewed by Sub-Lieutenant Katsuhisa Ban and Petty Officer Nomori Ashiba. Ban, at the age of 23 and as a Sub-Lieutenant, was the most junior of the three submarine commanders who took part in the attack. We know that he was the son of a highly decorated officer and had passed the gruelling entrance examinations of both the Navy and the Army military academies. What I think this helps us to show is that these were the elite special forces of their day. All the crewmen of the midget submarines had completed a gruelling three-year course at the Imperial Naval Academy at Etajima. They were men of courage and passion, I think, but also of great discipline, and this is evident when we look back at the events of the 31st of May 1942. M24, narrowly avoiding contact with the patrol boat, HMS Farley, crosses the submarine indicator loop at 9.48pm, again undetected. 
as yet the alarm had not yet been properly raised among Sydney's defenders. We already know that news of M14's presence did not reach the commander of Allied naval forces in Sydney, Rear Admiral Muirhead Gould, until 9.52pm, minutes after the second midget, M24, enters the harbour. Even then, it's not till 10.27, 40 minutes later, that a general alarm is sounded, by which time the enemy submarine has already succeeded in tailing a manly ferry through a gate in the boom net. At 10.52pm, the intruder is finally sighted by a spotlight operator aboard the American cruiser USS Chicago, less than 500 metres from the moored vessel's starboard side. Chicago opens fire, but is unable to inflict damage on an enemy that was so close, given that its gun simply couldn't be lowered far enough. What it did succeed in hitting, however, was Fort Denison's Martello Tower, and shell fragments were actually later discovered as far away as Mossman and Cremorne on Sydney's North Shore. Unexploded ordnance was yet another hazard, and there was a great deal of embarrassment on the part of Australia's leaders after the event with the haphazard ways in which these problems were addressed. Now, M24, which was now the centre of tension for Sydney's defenders, fled westwards towards Sydney Harbour Bridge, evading HMAS Wyala and Geelong, and returning to periscope depth sometime later, Barn and Ashiba were now able to take up a firing position southwest of Bradley's Head, where they could see USS Chicago's stern silhouetted against the lights at Garden Island's new Captain Cook graving dock. USS Chicago was the largest vessel in the harbour, and here it was being presented to the Japanese attackers more or less on a silver platter. At 11.14pm, Rear Admiral Miyohead Gold ordered all shipping in Sydney Harbour to observe blackout conditions. The lights at Garden Island, however, would remain on until 12.25am the next day, which was the 1st of June. Five minutes later, M24 fired its torpedoes. One of them ran harmlessly aground on the eastern shore of Garden Island, failing to explode, whilst the other passed underneath the Chicago, underneath the Dutch submarine K9, and converted ferry HMAS Cuttable, hitting the breakwater against which the Cuttable was moored. The explosion caused the vessel, which was acting as a floating barracks for sailors transferring between postings, to break in two, whilst there was also damage to the K9. Subsequent assessment would have it that the M24 fired its torpedoes too close to the Chicago and that they had not had enough time to attain their optimum trajectory, causing them to pass underneath their intended target. The attack nevertheless succeeded in killing 19 Australian sailors and two British whilst wounding another 10 people. The M24 was then able to submerge and to make its escape, after which it vanished. Dr. Jones, what happened to the M24 after it made its attack? When, where and how was it later discovered? Well, one of the mysteries which surrounded the Japanese attack on Sydney in 1942 was, of course, that of the M24's fate. Both of the other submarines which took part in the attack were quickly recovered by Allied authorities, albeit in fairly poor condition, and were actually combined into a more or less complete sub. This is then mounted on a trailer and taken on a 4,000-kilometre tour of southern New South Wales, Victoria and South Australia, in a drive to raise money for the Naval Relief Fund. In 1943, it arrives at the Australian War Memorial in Canberra, opened just two years earlier, and for many years it would be found displayed in three separate pieces outside the museum. During the 1980s, the decision was made to bring it inside the museum, owing mainly to incidents of vandalism. 
which I actually believe included the submarine being painted yellow in homage to the Beatles song Yellow Submarine. Today, it can be found fully restored as part of a permanent exhibition on the attack alongside the wheelhouse of HMAS Cuttable. Now, this of course leaves us with the mystery of M24. Initially, of course, the Allies had suspected the submarine of making a successful escape from the harbour and rendezvousing as, as they had always hoped to do with the mother submarine. After the war, however, it becomes evident, based on Japanese sources, that the submarine had perished somewhere en route. Search was then on, and during the next 60 years, there were no less than 50 claims made to the Royal Australian Navy and other groups as to the vessel's whereabouts. Uh, it's not until November 2006, however, that a team of amateur scuba divers stumbled across the wreck near Bungan Head off Sydney's northern beaches. It subsequently became a heritage site and remains untouchable, of course, as a war grave. It has, however, been thoroughly observed, analysed and documented as a unique piece of military hardware from an aspect of the Second World War, of which surprisingly little is known even today. Now, by 1am on the morning of the 1st of June, 1942, all Allied naval forces in Sydney Harbour were on full alert, searching for any more enemy submarines that might be in the vicinity, as well as attempting to recover survivors from the wrecked cutterball. The Japanese submarine M14 had been destroyed, M24 was still at large, and it was amid this chaos that a third and final midget submarine would commence its mission. Let us not forget that whilst all this was going on, whilst the infamous M24 was pressing home its attack, there was of course a third midget submarine at large in the harbour, the M21, launched from the mother submarine I-22 at around a quarter to eleven. This is around about the time that the searchlight operator aboard the Chicago first spots the M24. Unlike its predecessors, M21 doesn't remain undetected for long. Its conning tower is quickly identified by an unarmed auxiliary patrol boat, HMAS Loriana, which radios its position to Fort War signal station at South Head. The nearby HMAS Yandra then attempted to ram the intruder, and after losing and then regaining contact with its target, dropped six depth charges. At the time, these were believed to have destroyed the submarine, although we now know that it survived, probably taking refuge on the harbour floor. At around 3am on the morning of the 1st of June, two and a half hours after M24 fired its torpedoes, the M21 attempted to re-enter the harbour, by which time all the major Allied shipping has been ordered out into the open ocean to avoid any further midgets that might be at large. After a sighting by the departing Chicago, no less, it's soon detected via an indicator loop, and at 3.50am, HMAS Canimbla fires on M21 in Neutral Bay. M21 was crewed by Lieutenant Hugh Matsuo and Petty Officer Masao Suzuku. Now, Matsuo had already distinguished himself working as a spy at Pearl Harbor, and it was from observing the fate of the five midget submarines that were deployed during the attack in December 1941 that he suggests a number of design modifications that were evident in the submarines recovered from the Sydney operation. Clearly a calculating and cautious man, Matsuo attempted to evade detection for as long as possible, but it's at 5am that the channel patrol boat Sea Mist spots his submarine in Taylor's Bay and commences a depth charge attack. It's soon joined by HMAS Steady Hour and Yarama, and it's at 8.30am that the M21 is finally deemed to have been put out of action. Its engine's still operable, its crew dead, having elected at some point to commit suicide by shooting themselves. When it was pulled from the water, M21 was observed to have sustained considerable damage to its bow, which had 
fortuitously, prevented it from firing its torpedoes. When the crew had attempted to scuttle their submarine in much the same way as M14 had the previous night, they had discovered that the fuses were wet, and it is for this reason that they chose suicide by other means, leaving their damaged submarine in more or less intact for salvage. News of the attack was not published in Australian newspapers until the 2nd of June. Wartime censorship, however, precluded full details of the raid from being released until the 6th. On the 3rd of June, Mio Head Gould and over 200 naval personnel attended a funeral service for the 21 Allied sailors that had been killed aboard the Cutterbull. Full naval honours were also given to four of the Japanese attackers recovered from M14 and M21, who were cremated at Rookwood Cemetery. Now, despite much criticism for this act at the time, the Australian High Command hoped that by demonstrating compassion and all due respect to the fallen Japanese servicemen, they might inspire their enemy to show greater respect to Allied prisoners of war, many of whom were being kept in the most inhumane conditions in Japanese camps throughout Southeast Asia. When this didn't happen, any similar funerals for enemy personnel were banned. No trace was found of the third midget submarine, M24, until 2006, when scuba divers stumbled across the wreck off Bungan Head, near Newport, on Sydney's northern beaches. It currently represents one of only five Japanese midget submarine wreck sites around the world, providing a unique opportunity to better understand this mysterious and sinister weapon of war. When they attacked Sydney, the Allies still had a long war ahead of them. But there were still positive points to be drawn from the incident and many lessons to be learned for the way that lay ahead. Yes, the Japanese never returned to Sydney Harbour. The five Japanese mother submarines that had facilitated the attack waited off port hacking in vain for their countrymen to return until the 3rd of June when they dispersed to carry out their secondary missions. Four of them commenced operations against Allied merchant shipping along Australia's east coast. On the morning of the 8th of June, I-24 and I-21 briefly bombarded Sydney and Newcastle. These attacks were designed to have a psychological impact on the local population, and although propaganda would have us believe that Sydney siders were left unshaken by the shelling, house prices, I am led to believe, in the eastern suburbs experienced a significant decline as people fled west in the belief that a Japanese invasion was imminent. The following day, the New South Wales Legislative Assembly discussed setting up an inquiry into why the midget submarines had not been detected by the indicator loop system before they entered Port Jackson. There were also questions relating to the failure of air raid sirens to sound when the shelling was taking place, and to the shortcomings of the bomb disposal teams that were dispatched to disarm unexploded shells. Sydney, in short, was a city that was caught wholly unprepared for war. It was helped, somewhat, by the experience that many of its naval defenders had received combating submarines overseas, as well as, of course, by flaws in the Japanese tactics, the most obvious of which was their attempt to use midget submarines, a weapon that had originally been designed to support large fleet actions in a lone attack role. If the attack had any sort of impact on the outcome of the war, it was wholly in the Allies' favour, I think, given that it helped to open Australian eyes to the realisation that this was a different sort of conflict to that which had come before. Australians weren't merely supporting Britain on another overseas adventure. They were fighting to defend their own country, their own freedoms, and their own way of life. And I think it's this that helps make it such an important part of our history. Now, before we properly wrap up this episode, uh, we'd like to take the time to thank our producer, Tom. 
If this recording sounds substantially better than our previous ones, it's because he's done a lot of work behind the scenes to improve our sound. So thank you, Tom. This is History of Sydney. I'm Ilana Penderose. And I'm Dr. Robert Jones. And we will see you next time.